Hello, and welcome to The Fandamentalist, the fandom podcast investigating all aspects of geeky media. Sorry, did I hit my head and wake up in patriarchal bullshit land? Don't put me in charge! It certainly worries me to make self-defeating mistakes out of fear of appearing weak. You were right. We are from different worlds. That is a failing indeed, but I cannot laugh at it. Welcome to the I Disappoint Dad Club. That theme song you just heard is Good Riddance by R. Sonar, which is available on the Free Music Archive. My name is Kylie, and here with me are Gretchen. Hello. And Julia. Hey, everybody. The three of us write for thefandamentals.com for fundamentally sound fandom analysis. And you can go there, check out all kinds of news, reviews, uh, analysis pieces, uh, really a lot of analysis pieces on <laughs> all sorts of geeky <laughs> That's media. Our jam. Right. Also, you may have noticed the quotes changed for our intro. Uh, because it's... Season two. Season two, yay. Hello for arbitrary calendar changes. Woo. I <laughs> Which mean, is totally fitting because today is daylight savings. We're recording this on the day daylight savings. I thought happens, it was fitting like, because we're Steven Universe fans. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, that is let's also Let's have true. a season change in the middle of the week. Why not? <laughs> right. Yeah, so what does season two mean? Absolutely nothing. This podcast is still going to be pretty much exactly the same, where we're going to start off by talking about some fandom news, and then we're going to have some segments where we talk about other things. Why did I make it season two now? Because we really wanted new quotes, and we had been wanting new quotes for a really long time. Yeah. So. Right. Um, anyway, also, we we hit like, what, 21 episodes or something like that? So. Yep. Yeah, it's time for change. That's half a year, guys. It's half a year for our, our podcast. Our podcast is officially adult, and it can drink legally within the United States because it's 21. <gasps> oh, very true. So let's, it could let's drink, all cheers it afterwards. It could drink two episodes ago in Ontario. <laughs> and also smoke marijuana starting in 2018. All right, so we've got a really fun podcast for you today. We're going to be talking about Rebecca Bunch and uh, mental is illness representation. We're going to continue our series on Game of Thrones versus the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, uh, today about political complexity. Hooray! <laughs> and then we're going to conclude by talking about some good writing fallacies, uh, which will be a spirited discussion. But unfortunately, we have to start off with news. And I say unfortunately because what was dominating oh. the Hollywood news cycle, but, you know, Weinstein, Brian Singer, uh, the allegations coming out about... It's, it's not just allegations. It's, it's, you know, yeah. th they're, they're accused of sexual assault um, and rape and... By, yeah. like, more than one person. By, like, right. 90. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's just so fucking horrible. And, uh... You know, it, it seems like, especially with Weinstein, it was one of, and Singer too, it was one of those like really badly kept secrets that yeah. like, he, this is just how it is and people accept it. So for whatever reason, you know, people came forward and it was just a windfall of like, let's take this down. Right. I, when the Weinstein news first hit, it was one of those where like, oh, right. Every, I don't know. It just seems like every certain amount of time you get like, um, news about something like this happening and it never really goes anywhere. But I've been ugh, excited is the wrong word. No, like the thing. Um, it's so fucked it's just up. Nice because to see it's like snowballing. No, but like people have been making jokes about this for years. Just like 
off-color jokes and, like, random TV shows and award shows about how Harvey Weinstein is a sexual predator. Mm, right. Like. Yeah, that's true. And, like, you see, like, clip compilations. It was not, like, an isolated incident. People were doing this all the time. Everybody knew about it. Mm, right. So, I guess my question, too, is, you know, this is finally getting attention. Mm-hmm. It looks like there's going to be other media figures that are going to be called out in this level because there's a support there now. Right. Is this going to have any impact outside of Hollywood with our rape culture and the way that um, women are treated when they come forward? I say women. It's it's not necessarily uh, gendered. There's obviously male victims, but mm-hmm. like women are tended to be dismissed or like, you know, they're asking for it, all that bullshit. So I'm just curious if the, is is Hollywood like setting the stage? Is Hollywood behind the stage? Is this an isolated thing? Uh, what do you guys think the cultural impact is going to be of this? Well, the thing mm. is that like, like this kind of behavior is like, especially like you have to be extremely powerful in order to get away with what they got away with, and it's almost like a like it's to the point where like you know like your garden variety sexual harasser might not think that this applies to him because it wasn't like, you know, over 40 years with hundreds of victims, you know? Right. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, there's, there's men in powerful positions in every industry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And there's like, you know, like when you, when you like, you know, run a small company with like 10 employees and you're the boss, you know, in that context, you're just as powerful as someone as Harvey Weinstein, you know? (sighs) If not, if not more so, uh, yeah. really, be- because there just is, there's less recourse if there's fewer potential allies to be helping you out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's good this came out. It's disturbing how much we keep hearing. Like, yeah, it's just- disturbing because, like, you know, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> That that was upsetting to me because I, oh, I like yeah, him. Oh yeah, that, that's you that's know? the other one. So, like um, nobody likes Harvey Weinstein, but everybody likes Kevin Spacey. And like you're just like it's not just the people who are kind of obviously creepy, and that's that's I think upsetting. Well, and with with Kevin Spacey too, mm-hmm. um, and I mean that's another one of Hollywood's worst kept secrets that a not he's gay, but b he. I thought he's been out for years. Actually, I was just like, what? He's coming out now. Yeah, and and he right. specific people know he preys on younger boys. Like this is a thing that has been around. I mean, we're we're talking like um fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year olds. Uh, not that it's like I don't want to say like there's shades of pedophilia, but I I think there is a difference between that and like you know five year olds. Yeah, uh, as victims. But yeah, no. So this is like people who work with Kevin Spacey have known this for years. Pretty much everyone has just accepted this. Uh, and then what's going on now too is, you know, every, everyone is coming out against him, including what it was like eight cast and crew members of House of Cards that came out and said that, uh, he was, you know, sexually assaulting or harassing or in, in some nature, like being inappropriate. And that was just House of Cards. Yeah. Like it was something really disturbing like that. And then originally, uh, originally Netflix said, okay, like House of Cards is just going to end after the season. And that, that kind of sounded like they were already ending anyway. Yeah. And then that they was had- what, that's what I assumed when the news broke that they were like already planning on ending House of Cards. And we're like, oh, well, now's a convenient time to be like, all right, we're done. We're not going to do anymore yeah. after this season. Well, and they had spinoffs planned too. And I think they were going to continue with it. But now after like even more came out with Kevin Spacey, they're just done. It's it's killed. Right. And that I appreciate that. And 
what is even more upsetting to me is you have someone like Danny Masterson who um, is actually they under investigation and potentially facing like criminal charges and prosecution for multiple counts of rape. Um, and Netflix has done nothing about his TV show. Nobody's heard of his TV show, so. Yeah, but, like, that doesn't change the fact that, like, I don't necessarily think that it is entirely true, but I can understand why people are saying that there's a level of homophobia involved. That they're like, that they're like, oh, well, like, Kevin Spacey's gay, so we'll cancel his show. Like, he's a gay sexual abuser, so we'll cancel his show. But here is an actual, like, here's a straight guy who's literally going to be facing criminal charges fairly soon for multiple counts of rape, but we're just going to let his show stay on because I, cause it's I fine. I honestly think it's a little bit more cynical than that when it's just a matter of how deep is the public outcry and that's what they listen to. I really, I mean, there, yeah, that's a, nobody's heard of this French show. I've not heard of it. Right. Like that's right. an implication to it, certainly. But, you know, when this comes out about Kevin Spacey, it's like, how many people have watched House of Cards and how many people are just familiar with Kevin Spacey for years and years anyway. Right. It, it's just like a different scope, I think. Yeah, um, I agree. Right. And yeah, like that's not any less upsetting to be like, oh, right. They only care about brain, like, you know, they only care about the famous people who do it. Like the, the people who aren't doing anything important. Right. Are right. allowed to and- keep making their work. Yeah. That's why I know. said like the garden variety sexual harassers. I'm not sure how much this would apply to them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good implication, but maybe, you know, what we need is more uh, Netflix actors to be exposed as sexual predators, and Mm. we'll see if we can, like, find a pattern for Netflix response, because I'm sure there's going to be more coming out, uh, because everything's terrible. Well, you know, patriarchy, you give men enough power, sometimes it corrupts them. (laughs) Right, because that's the running thread, and that's why I get so, I was so frustrated by a lot of the conversation around Kevin Space in particular, which didn't surprise me. Um, all the people who are like, see, look, gay people are predators. And like, no, like, honest, like, white men with any kind of power are going to use that power to hurt people with less power. It has nothing to do with sexual orientation and everything to do with, like, power and privilege. Well, and that's the thing, though, is that Kevin Spacey basically threw lighter fluid onto that uh, because when these when this came out, he came out as gay like formally so he was basically saying oh now i can live honestly as a gay man it's like these things are unrelated sir right right you could you could have come out at literally any other time in your life (laughs) no seriously i was just i know i did too i didn't realize yeah it's like it was one of those like worst kept secrets of like oh right okay good for you i guess this is new it's like bubbling (laughs) (laughs) evan rachel wood was like tweeting about this and she was like hey i'm bisexual and i've been at parties with minors and i haven't you know sexually assaulted anyone because my sexuality doesn't have anything to do with that right right so yeah it's just ridiculous Um, (laughs) it's like you should be able to be in a room alone with a woman that's actually assaulting her right right (laughs) if you are a man and cannot be in a room in a meeting with a woman on your own and not want to sexually assault her, maybe that says something about you and not yeah. her. You can even want to sexually assault her so you don't actually do it. I understand right. that thoughts are involuntary. 
Anyway, moving on with fandom news. Uh, Apparently, they Amazon might be making a Lord of the Rings series, that's mini weird. series. Is it going to be dark and gritty? I bet it's going to be dark and gritty. I just have. Uh, on the I mean, one there's hand, there's hardly I think... any female characters to rape, so how can they make it dark and gritty? Right, right. Well, and like, I just don't. I honestly, I love Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, despite Tolkien's flaws, I, I, I was raised on it. Um, yeah. and I don't think that Tolkien is honestly what modern audiences want. I don't think a, a good adaptation of Tolkien, like a faithful adaptation of Tolkien is what modern fantasy audiences want. No, and uh, we'll link the piece one adaptation to ruin them all, because what I was actually thinking is that the Lord of the Rings movies in some ways, you know, they were very good, but it kind of was a little bit broing it, just a little bit. Like, uh, some of the themes were neutered. Uh, well, some of the things are a little ugly, so. Well, and they totally, um, well, in my opinion, ruined. Um, but, like, one of the running themes of... Lord of the Rings is these like the men of the West. Like you have the men who are like um like scions of like the the houses of Numenor who were yeah. like this, you know, the that, yes. Yeah, they were like <laughs> the the very like virtuous, you know, faithful, I guess you might call them godly, but not like Christian in that way, but like whatever, you know, they were yeah, the, yeah. like paragons of humanity. Um and there are certain characters in this story who have what they call, like, the heir of the men of the West or the heir of Numenor about them. So, like, they're supposed to be really noble and are not tempted by the ring. You know, for example, that's one of the ways that they showcase that they're, like, above, you know, desiring this, like, evil weapon for themselves. Um mm-hmm. And, like, the film adaptations were like, yeah, but that makes them too good. So, so like, scratch that. And totally just, like, take away that whole theme of, like, there are people who would not be tempted by using this evil weapon for whatever reason. And and so basically everyone wants it. And there's no one who's like, no, I understand that it could do some good things <laughs> and, like, but it's evil and I won't let it corrupt me. Well, and what's also weird is that, like, while they did that, at the same time, they really whitewashed Aragorn. Like, he's kind of an asshole. Oh, books. yeah, he's, he's, yeah. But he kind of became, like, action man, right? Like, you know, designated hero. Yeah. In oh, yeah. that super tropey way. And like, the <laughs> thing that I noticed, like, I've, I haven't been as engaged with that text as you have, Gretchen, but, like, Denethor, there is this whole part in the books where he's just like, yeah, I'm the spirit of Gondor unless the king should come again. And yep. it was very, like, his whole, like, like, the temporary nature of his rule and the, his willingness to give it up is very, like, highlighted. As, oh, like, yeah. one of the yeah. virtues. And, like, in the movies, they did the opposite of that. And it kind of really annoyed me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. the whole... He doesn't go crazy because he's, yeah, he's so like, ambitious Gondor needs for no power. King. No, like, that, no. No, no like, he goes mad because he loses one son and then he thinks the other one is going to die. And also, Sauron had been, like, twisting his mind for years using the Palantir. You know, like, we should we should do an episode just on the Lord of the Rings adaptations and have Katie on to talk about ooh, it. Ooh, good I, idea. Yeah, but what I was going to say, like... Is is this just because Julia and I are like so stupidly engaged with Game of Thrones? Like, is is this really just Amazon trying to tap in on the Game of Thrones audience? What 
what I don't understand is how this could honestly, how this could possibly tap into Game of Thrones fans. No, I, I get why you're saying that, but it just seems like, you know, high fantasy is in demand right now because of Game of Thrones. People have a very superficial understanding of Game of Thrones. You may have noticed that. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and what we've, is... We've yeah. read about this a lot, Julia. <laughs> but I feel like it's it's not even like high fantasy is is in demand. It's like people want cool CGI magical creatures and... Shocky shocks. Shocky shocks. And there aren't very many like shocky shocks sex and, and violence. Why wouldn't they do the Silmarillion if that's what... Right, like, going. honestly, like, if what they want is, like, you know, tits and dragons, there may not be dragons, but there's some pretty there's dragons. fucking crazy monsters in... Eh, they're not, like, a major part of the story, but there's, like, a giant... Like, there are some pretty crazy monsters mm-hmm. in the Silmarillion, like... Yeah, well, there's an army of Balrogs. Yeah, you could have a whole bunch of Balrogs, and then there's, you know like the giant evil wolves and you have like, I hate to be that guy but we're way over time spiders. on this segment <laughs> like, way over time let's talk yeah, about Steven Universe and Thor and then move on alright so yeah Thor Ragnarok it's I hear it's really, really good. good like the BBC uh, loves it Griffin saw it and he said it was really strong. Like it was just an engaging, good movie. Um, the news that came out was Valkyrie is bisexual. That was confirmed by the actor. And apparently there's a scene where that was implied with her character and that scene had been cut. There was a woman, there was a scene where a woman was leaving her bedroom and it was like in the background. Yeah. And Griffin said that there's like not even a scene in the movie with like a room so he it would have been like completely a different cut of this like he doesn't see how it even would have fit in i haven't seen the film I know, so this, i can't speak this reminds me of that beauty and the beast thing <laughs> like okay fine i guess that was yeah. representation i have a feeling that like had that scene been left in it wouldn't have been like so amazing anyway mm-hmm. but you know to me it was the it was less that and more the way it was talked about um, yeah. like the discussion of cutting it was like, well, we cut it because it distracted from vital exposition. And I was like, but, but it's just a woman leaving a room in the background. Like that <laughs> literally happens all the time in action movies with just a male hero being the I one mean, in the bedroom. So what you're what implying is like bisexuality in and of itself is distracting. distracting. I guess. I mean, the the problem that I'm having with any of this discussion is that, like, my impression of action movies these days is now that there's, like, basically a second film always on the cutting room floor, no matter what's being produced. So we're not in the editing room. We don't know what this looked like. It's not great that they cut it. I don't really see the point of confirming her bisexual when there's no indication at all. Like, that, that, this is what I hate that Hollywood does. It's like, well, we, we couldn't show it, but th- she is bisexual. So there you go. It's like, right. okay, is this supposed to do anything for us? I mean, but I, I guess like when you have like, you know, a, like a canon behind the source material where like the character is bisexual and you're like, yeah, she's bisexual, I guess. Like. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Gretchen's right. It mm-hmm. takes like kind of zero effort to establish this. Yeah, right. I had a whole discussion with with someone on Twitter about this. Like, it takes like no effort to establish a character as bisexual, and have it not be like a big major thing. Like, it doesn't have to be a thing. Like, you can just like have that. Like, even the scene that they cut is like, okay, there's a woman walking out of another woman's bedroom. 
and it's not like the focal point of the scene. It's just in the background and we move on. Like, okay, you've established she's bisexual. It doesn't have to be the focal point of her character, but it, it is a, if you're going to say it is a integral part of her character, mm-hmm. then I think you have to actually show that on screen. You can't just tell us that. Well, yeah, I guess if they're thinking it's important enough to talk about, like, mm-hmm. outside of the context of the film, then, right. yeah, like, That's show it to point. us. But what what Griffin was saying is that, like, he doesn't even see where in the background that would have been. There wasn't even, like, a setting where this makes sense. So, I don't know. Which is weird why then why they would then say it was distracting to vital exposition unless they cut a whole scene. I, yeah, yeah, that's what it's sounding like. Um, I don't know. Maybe they were just so distracted by the bedroom woman. I you guess. know what I'm distracted by? What? How long this hiatus for Steven Universe is? Oh my gosh, oh, that was that was really skillful, Julia. Uh, well, the hiatus for Steven Universe is coming to an end Hooray! on November 10th. Yay! But it's only coming to the Cartoon Network app, which is smart of them. I think I, yeah. I actually do think it's smart. Yeah, the, you, you know, kids are using iPads now, like like children, children, yeah. and parents are like letting them watch TV on apps because parents are like younger Gen Xers or ba- or uh, millennials. So like we all understand this technology. Mm-hmm. And then in addition, Steven Universe also has a highly engaged, you know, teenage and young twenties audience who pirates everything. Right? Yeah. Like it's a big issue this is a very pirated show so no one's really watching it legally my only thing is cartoon network's app has a cable subscription paywall or at least it did so unless they're changing that i'm not really sure what the long-term plan is like what they really really should do is charge i don't know four dollars a month yeah or something just have it on itunes or something like just like there's no way for me to watch steve universe legally with any kind of like you know like, I can't watch it legally when it comes out. Like, I just can't. There's no way for me to do it. Yeah, if they had, like, older episodes on their app, I'd totally pay $5 a month for that. Yeah, I totally would. I would pay, like, you know, 99 cents an episode, something like that. No problem. Yeah. So we'll we'll see if that's still a cable paywall. But at least, hey, we have a date and Cartoon Network remembered that the show exists. So that's something. That's nice. <laughs> no, Cartoon Network is uh, just... Maybe they're just trying to figure their shit out with, like, the whole, like, moving to Web 2.0 or whatever. But, like... Yeah, this, this is getting ridiculous. And it's not just Steven Universe. It's like everything but Teen Titans as far as I can tell. Yeah, right. I do really enjoy all of the people who are like, oh, no, you have to put Steven Universe on the app because you can't, like, not play Teen Titans Go for 10 hours a day. Because <laughs> it's literally, like, the the show they play all day long. If you look at their schedules, I mean, that's not even exaggeration on yeah. Gretchen's part at no. all. It is literally one color block of just Teen Titans. Right. But they can't Steve make room go. for, you know, 11 minutes <laughs> of Steven All right. Universe. Uh, All right, we like we went way over time. I mean, the Weinstein stuff is really important to talk about, but we are way over time. So we are going to have to transition into our first segment on Rebecca Bunch. I would have gone with you to the end. Fires mortal. Okay, so I have a new favorite show, I think. I mean, there's Steven Universe, which I think... Is this new? You Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, like, I think it's it's officially, like, at the top of the pile right now in terms of what I, I'm enjoying, what is what is transmitting right now, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, it totally is for me, too. Yeah, and that is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the show that I really didn't think I would like based on its title. <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, and just, like, I don't know. There's something about the fact that 
a show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a feminist masterpiece that is so, like, appropriate to this show and what it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah, see, that, that's the thing. Like, I yeah. was so turned off by the title mm-hmm. and the premise, and it wasn't until people were like, she's Jewish, watch it, that I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do this. And then, you know, to my delight, the title and that premise is purposely explored and deconstructed. That's the whole yeah. point of it. Like, it's, it's um, deconstructed in the theme song of the first season. <laughs> So, yeah that's a sexist term the situation's actually more nuanced than that <laughs> yeah but like even even at times even at times in season two and season one i was a little bit unsure because it would be like well no i mean she really did move there for josh and yeah. she really but is doing this also stuff. she actually did need a change <laughs> yeah 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 um but season three is going on right now and yes. it is just killing it oh like in what way? Like, like well, because, like, um, like, just, uh, Kylie wrote a piece about how, like, much she enjoys the fact that Rebecca's Jewishness is always there. Mm. Like, her mental illness. I didn't write that piece yet, but I plan to. Oh, you haven't written that piece yet? I thought I've proved it for you. Anyway, um, <laughs> whatever. Um, it's in your brain. Um, her mental illness has always been there. Like, mm. yeah. You know, like, I think we started diagnosing her, like, you know, a few episodes in. And then you meet your mother, her mother, and you're like, oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> and this is the season, the third season, where we're, they're really, like, starting to focus on it. And, like, our, our review of it last week was basically the title was, like, she's finally living up to the title of the show, you know? Um, yeah, well, um, mm. Rachel Bloom, who plays Rebecca yes. Brunch, and, and she's a, a co-producer of this with uh, Aline Brosh McKenna, uh, she was talking about how, like, this is the season they've actually wanted to do and wanted to get to because this is the season oh. where they're actually really digging into okay crazy ex-girlfriend like we're digging into what that crazy means and yeah. what it means for the character and really the two seasons before that were kind of prequels to getting her in that spot um oh, interesting yeah and so they've so what's fun is like you know these are high level spoilers but like season one it kind of like subverts all these tropes of like you know, fairy tales, it subverts the tropes of like, oh, the the unsuspecting suitor that you really should have been rooting for all along. Like, yeah. it really digs into stuff like that. And pretty much everything, it turns on its head. Um, the evil uh, girl that you're in competition with, who's the love interest yeah. of... The, the bitch post- in the corner of the poster. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, also, this show is a musical, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, two really? or four musical numbers every single episode. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And literally everyone on that cast, with the exception of, I think, Daryl's actor, has a musical theater background. So they are remarkably talented. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, I haven't seen this kind of skill paralleled like anywhere else, really. Hmm. I mean, I guess Supergirl has a good amount of uh, musical theater nerds on it, but. That's true. It's the uh, entire show isn't meant to like be a musical. It's just sometimes they'll whip that stuff out. Uh, but yeah, so season three, she's finally in that ex-girlfriend spot where she is quote unquote crazy and like yeah. taking action. She really wants revenge, but she's learning that like she can't actually get it. That's not something you can actually achieve that's satisfying in any way. Mm. Um, it's not empowering. No, and what I love too is that they they have said in interviews in this season Rachel will get diagnosed and that's not to like hang on a diagnosis but it's like she's in an unhealthy spot that's a tool for her to understand what she needs yeah. mm. and they've they've had like a therapist 
seeing her for two years now and the therapist is wonderful at like <laughs> you're not coming forward with your issues but then like you can see rachel avoiding them or rebecca i'm sorry you can see rebecca avoiding her issues in every spot well because like what what rebecca wants and like what that fairy tale thing is all about is how she wants to be normal and that's the one thing she could never have mm. and so she's, she's, she's trying to like play act normalcy there's this song that she sings to Seth Green, who plays a delivery man, which is <laughs> it all makes sense. Tell me I'm okay, Patrick, and she's clearly yeah. not okay because she's like in the middle of a nervous breakdown, and she like rushed a wedding in two weeks because she like made a really bad mistake and like all this kind of stuff. So she's singing to this guy, like "Tell me I'm okay," and he's like, you know, at her house delivering all this crazy shit she needs for her wedding, like you know, five thousand mason jars and tea lights and all that stuff. And there's one line in it where she she stops and she just starts talking. She's like, I'm sorry, did I miss the day in in kindergarten where everyone was taught how to be normal? It's like it's like everyone is in this cabal of normalcy and I'm out here the own jester in my Truman show. And that Hmm. that's really what they tackle. And yeah, I think this season especially highlights how like scared and self-destructive she is. But Mm. it doesn't do it in a way that's moralizing or like, oh, she needs, you know, she's just crazy. It does it in a way that creates empathy no matter how horrible her actions are, too. Well, I think, like, the thing that I really loved, like, about the pilot episode is that, like, Rebecca is clearly unhappy. She's not, like, healthy in any way. But, like, she's competent. Like, you know, like, she's a very good lawyer. You know, she's, Mm. she's successful. And, like... They didn't take that away from the character, you know, just like, they didn't make her kind of like, I don't know, like a useless person just because she's mentally ill. Right. She has, she has something that she can contribute to the world. And she's a little checked out at work half the time, but yeah. Yeah. But that's never not true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, she's always like incredibly smart. She does come through Mm -hmm. at moments for people when she needs to. It's just, she's in a... It's very realistic. Like, there's no other way for me to put it. And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a good narrative. But actually, that's (laughs) the end of the last episode (laughs) was about how life doesn't make narrative sense. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they like it. Everything you think about this show is immediately like brought up, lampshaded and deconstructed, Mm -hmm. which is one of the Mm -hmm. best things I can think. And, And the songs are just so like so sharp and so smart no matter what the topic is and just like um this this week's episode um i watched it yesterday and like i needed a moment afterwards because like it's like the most realistic portrayal of that kind of thing i've ever seen and Mm. you know to those of us who have like literally been there (laughs) it's kind of like not triggering but just kind of like like upsetting but in an empowering way because you're just like Yes, it's like that moment where you're just like, yeah, well, it's, it's not it's just valid- me. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's validating, validating, but it's exactly. also That's emotional. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But like, and just think the acting involved was just so good. And what's, what's so great good. too is that Rachel Bloom is mentally <laughs> ill herself. Uh, she has pretty intense OCD. She's talked a lot about her anxiety and depression. She actually had sleep anxiety for a really long time where the only way she was able to sleep was if she completely burnt herself out and then she'd able to mm-hmm. get like four hours a night, something like that. Um, so she mm-hmm. she's very open about her discussion and, you know, she doesn't stigmatize medication. She doesn't like, mm-hmm. you know, she basically understands diagnoses are a tool to help your therapist right. figure out a treatment that's going to work for you. 
It's yeah. not like a one size fits all. And she's definitely taking that mentality and applying it to this show in a way that I trust them, even though it's really uncomfortable to see Rebecca in such a broken, scary place. No, it's it's mm. very uncomfortable. And it's like, I know it's hard to explain. It's it's like being the three eyed raven. But like, like you get to this place where you're just like, if I can get through this, then everything will be okay. Right. And mm-hmm. she's always been there. It's just like, Right now in this new season, it's kind of at the point where, like, her friends can't ignore her anymore, she can't ignore her anymore, and it's actual, like, you know, something you have to deal with on a, like, kind of physical level. But she's always had that mindset where you're just like, okay, if I move to West Covina, then everything will be okay. If uh, I get Josh to love me, then everything will be okay. If I marry Josh, then everything will be okay. You know, like, you know, we'll never have problems again. And, like... What I love is that it, ha- it like it shows that like the whole thing is it, it's it's like a never ending kind of cycle and like even when you're well it's still something that never goes away. One of the best episodes mm. is in season two. It's called "Will Scarsdale Love Josh's uh, Shayna Punam," which means beautiful face. Although it's usually I, yeah. said in a very demeaning way, and mm. basically Rachel brings her boyfriend home and she wants him to like make fun of everything with her because she's so miserable at her home for good reason. Her mom's like kind of terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. And he kind of ends up like enjoying himself. And she realizes that like, maybe the unhappiness she's feeling is her, like it's within her. And, you know, she's dating this guy. It didn't magically fix everything. So she like literally says this to her therapist and the therapist is like, I'm sorry, what are you, are you finally ready to confront your problems? And then she like gets giddy and like clears her schedule and all that. And of course, like something comes that distracts Rebecca from that epiphany and Josh comes and proposes. Yeah. 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 But it's just like the last thing she needs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just great because like you see too, it's not a linear thing with her. Rebecca Mm -hmm. has these moments of clarity and she has these moments of wanting to push towards being healthy uh, like, there's even mm-hmm. one episode where she goes on this, like, cleanse diet and she's vegan because she's just trying to be a, like, you know, healthier person with a healthier mindset. And she yeah, ends and you up- just get fixations sometimes that you're really excited about for a few days and then you forget all about them. And then she just <laughs> yeah. ends up making one of the, like, least healthy decisions of her life in that episode because mm-hmm. it just kind of all, like, crashes down. So, yeah, I mean- it's just on a larger scale now this season, mm-hmm. but I think yeah. Rebecca Bunch is a character I haven't really seen on TV anywhere else because it's yeah. not just that she's mentally ill, but it's a woman that's mentally ill and she's allowed to be ugly and she's allowed to have these flaws and she's allowed to be really, really emotional without like being hysterical. You know, there's always that logic underneath it all. She's like, yeah, it's, she's histrionic. <laughs> like that's a medical term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Watch the show, right. even if you Watch have to do me legally because stupid yeah. CW. Okay. <laughs> There's something else at the core of my unhappiness that, that I didn't realize. Are we going to talk about Star Wars now? Yay! We are going to talk about Star Wars now. Uh, well, you know, the internet never stops talking about Star Wars in fairness. So. I, like I mean, that's true. I like Star Wars. I like Star Wars. I do. I... I don't feel that way about the fandom but that's okay we don't have to well, like not yeah, we don't have to like every single different. fandom equally it's fine it's <laughs> no. true i don't really hang out much in the star wars fandom no and and the steven universe fandom like you know i can't i can't 
but it's fine. It's fine. I, I think we're good. We can engage in, with shows and, and movies how we want. And how we want is to talk about those Star Wars prequels that we know and love <laughs> and compare it to Game of Thrones, another show that we know and love. That we know and love. Well, we know God, anyway. We're such assholes. So this is well. part four, part five in our series of comparing the prequels to Game of Thrones. And we have talked about character arcs. We have talked about logical coherence. We talked about production value when we actually had nice things to say about that. And today we are talking about political complexity, or if I may, perceived political complexity. And yep. we're going to compare it. So let's begin by talking about the prequels and those politics. It's all about the taxation of tax roots, Godly. <laughs> That's how this all started when somebody raised of George Lucas's yeah. taxes. <laughs> I think. Right. I think my favorite thing is that what the Trade Federation is and how it exists is never explained. And why it's like a political entity that has a seat in the Senate? Like, is it like the Hanseatic League having a seat in the Senate, or is it like, is it like? you know, Greyhound having a seat in the Senate. Oh, interesting. Well, is right. Is there a planet they're based on? Well, they all seem to be that one species that's totally not Japanese in any way. Totally not a racist oh stereotype. Oh my god, gun, <laughs> right. it is. No, because they exist and they have a blockade around Naboo because of taxation. Just taxation. Like the, the uh, Naboo don't want to pay their space taxes? It, so is I this guess? like... Are we... Do we have any reference point for this? Are these like the intolerable acts and the taxes are really wild? Or No, but like, how does it make it like, no, but just like, how does it make sense that these guys are taxating trade routes? Like, are they like tax farmers for the Republic? Or do Mm. they control the trade routes like as like a sovereign political entity? Aren't they separatists? Well, not the separatists don't come into play and Yeah. yeah, not in the Phantom Menace. Yeah. The Separatists come into play in the second film. Well, you can talk about the Separatists. <laughs> right. So the Trade Federation might just be a like offshoot of the Republic government. They're just the enforcers. Yeah, no, that's not... Yeah. So are they unjustly taxing Naboo? Is Naboo super... Is Naboo in the wrong in this dispute? Are they super nationalistic and they want... Like, th- this is their never kneel moment? I... I- Right, it's not clear whether or not it's not clear who's in the right or wrong in this because situation. Because all we're told is that it's dispute over the taxation of trade routes. Right. So is this political <laughs> is this co- political complexity on Lucas's part or is it just that like he needed a reason for a blockade to exist? I what I And he couldn't be bothered to think of one. I'm sure there's lots like maybe it was like a territorial dispute. That would work perfectly fine. What I really can't figure out is why Lucas insisted on so many senatorial scenes. And, like, why this is how he based so much of the plot. You know, like, uh, the, the plot of the second movie is then about whether they're pushing forth a military creation act, right? But, well, like, in I mean, the most nonsensical way possible. It's just that, like, on one level, I get why he wanted to do it this way because part of the original trilogy was talking about, like, the old republic. Yeah. That, like, the Empire replaced the Old Republic. So it's like, oh, well, this is before the rise of the Empire, so I have to show the Old Republic. Yeah, but and, like, the Old Republic just, was kind of, like, they, I don't know, they, they do go, go into it quite a bit in, like, the expanded materials, but how, like, the Old Republic was basically, like, a calcified dinosaur that, like, didn't 
couldn't get anything done, right? Like that's right. That was it was like mired in like bureaucratic, mm-hmm. like like so mired in like bureaucracy that like nothing ever got done. But that's like an oldest dirt story, right? You have like a right. political system that just becomes so it like, stagnates. Yeah, yeah, it's, and and it becomes so like like there's the works are so gummed with like how long it's been around basically like the you know you have traditions and procedures and precedents it just all takes just so long and then all of a sudden you have like you know something more authoritarian that could just like cut through all that red tape yeah, well, right? cause- that that's 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 an old dessert story and there's there's a point where like you don't have to explain it because everybody knows that story mm-hmm. right but this is just like the most surface level politics that mm-hmm. you can get because yeah that's happening and then you see like the rise of palpatine but i think what bothers me the most about it and this is certainly something pointed out in the red later media reviews not to like always mention them it's just they did such a thorough job They're on the prequels quite definitive yeah <laughs> right but the political complexity of these prequels quote unquote is completely disconnected from the reality for like the actual inhabitants of the worlds mm-hmm. like you don't see the way the blockade affects the naboo because when you're on naboo every one seems fine yeah mm. well they tried to do like some kind of like you know like like ethnic conflict thing between the naboo and the gungans that was kind of like resolved by one speech by a 14 year old and just like well it was never even really explicated what that like conflict was about mm-hmm. either i mean it's clearly like a colonial kind of situation <laughs> like that's kind of clear just from how it's all on the screen is it though like i think it's how do you clear. Co- how do you I mean, but, I, yeah, it's pretty clear colonize? that the Gungans are native are native to the planet, and the humans aren't. Like, that's kind of clear. Is that um, Yeah. See, I'm it, it never. I feel like it's just it's equally possible that they were both native species. At least, at least the from humans, the way. Well, humans are clearly like transgalactic or whatever, right? They live all over the place, right? But like, unless they happen to, to me, evolve like, on I'm this not, particular I'm not, planet. Yeah. I'm not sure that the film actually explicated that the humans no. had no, were but, like, colonial that's what aggressors. I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't, like, there are points where you don't have to explicate things. You can just kind of put them on the screen. But, like, clearly the prequels haven't, like, they haven't put, in, they haven't explicated enough. Well, I mean, I think, like, you don't need to explicate everything, but if it's a mm-hmm. main conflict that your characters are resolving, then exactly. the audience needs to know what that conflict is. And then I think also right. pulling back, like, there's the rise of, there's a rise of a fascist regime in Coruscant and like you don't see Coruscant changing in any way. I mean, Red, my favorite mm-hmm. so part of the Letterbeater's review, like there's still space traffic going on behind Anakin when he's like going to go slaughter watch the, the younglings. Wars. So like for those people <laughs> in, you know, their ships just going to work, like they don't know what's going on in the Senate. So why why yeah. is this even a bad thing? I know, I mean, I know why fascism is a bad thing, but I'm saying, like, we're not actually yeah. shown it. But, like, fascism so often is like that, you know? Like, people are okay with it because, like, finally shit's getting done, right? Or they think finally shit's getting done. But, like, we didn't even see how the Senate's, like, inefficiencies hurt anyone except maybe the no. Naboo who were crippled without right. space trade, but we don't know why they're crippled without space trade, and we never saw that either. Yeah. No. So, and I know I, I keep saying watch Clone Wars because like this stuff is actually developed a little bit in Clone Wars, but the prequels shouldn't get credit for that because <laughs> it's not in the prequels. Um, no, and it clearly needs about, to be. Yeah, we're talking about the prequels. Yeah, but like the thing that I find about the whole like political setup of the of like the Senate and the political system of the Republic is how like 
like from a doula's perspective, like it's impossible, like it takes you out of the world because it's just so obviously developed for the sake of the plot. Right? right. Like it's set up precisely like George Lucas designed this political system precisely so Palpatine could take it over, you know? And that's just so fucking obvious. Right, like this touches into the logical coherence we were talking about last time, right? Where yeah. the biggest issue is that Palpatine is obviously grabbing power and obviously the only person who's possibly the Sith. And the Jedi are just like, like remember, eh. remember when, uh, like Palpatine, not Palpatine, Padme was basically able to overthrow the Chancellor with like one vote. Yeah. <laughs> She's just like, I think this Chancellor should go so Palpatine could take over. Just like you're one senator. There's like thousands of them in this room. A vote of no confidants. Yeah. <laughs> I remember very clearly. But here's the thing about Star Wars. Like, I wouldn't call any of this political complexity. This isn't, po- this yeah. isn't complex. It's just, it happens to no. be politics. And he had that one good line about, uh, democracy dying to thunderous applause that he was really proud Which of. Which made no sense in the context. We were just like, where were you before, Padme, when this could actually have been useful? <laughs> good things to right. know. <laughs> She's pregnant. She had a boyfriend to get. Well, and I would say the fact that, like, he's relying on so many, like, standard tropes and distinctions is a sign that it's not political complexity because we have to fill in the blanks of a lot of this ourselves because, you know, like, a calcified Senate being taken over by a fascist dictator, like, that's not really politically complex. Like, we all know what that is. No, and... And we can fill that in, like, it's not explicated on screen super well, and we can fill that in because it's such a, like, standard story. Like, it's a story everyone knows. And I don't think people... I mean, like, like political complexity, like, good political complexity is, if I'm allowed to mention anymore, it's like House of Cards, right? Like, you have all these relationships between people that the character navigates, right? And these relationships, like, interact, they contradict each other, and, like, the character somehow is able to navigate in order to get to a certain goal with all right. of these relationships, right? That's like, that's like political complexity. Yeah, this yeah. is just like complicated because <laughs> it's obscure. And, and like, even to take right. it out of like a literal politics context, I would say black sales had political complexity because you're seeing both sides of like the war. You're seeing the repercussions in the morally ambiguous ways everyone has to proceed and that they all. And like, if you make a decision, it has both like good foreseen consequences and bad foreseen consequences and good unforeseen consequences. And like, because there are so many different like players with so many different interests in the system. Like what bothers me about Star Wars is I fucking love political procedurals. Like I would watch a movie of the driest shit possible and everyone would be like, what the fuck was that movie? I'd be like, that was great because I absolutely love really getting into the nitty gritty. It's just that there's nothing. You like watching C-SPAN. Yeah, I do. I I watch it in the back of work. I listen to it and I was like having heart palpitations as they're debating the same points over chip on uh, Friday. But yeah, no, and, and you know, then you watch the prequels and it's like, there's nothing deeper. Like, there's just not. You can't really dig into anything. Yeah, you're just like, I love democracy. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's another way in which it's not all that politically complex because you, it's such a, it's such a black and white distinction even between mm-hmm. like the political parties. It's like, well, you have democracy <laughs> and you have fascists. Like, <laughs> and there's no one in between. You're, right? Like, there's no, like, and, like if you want to talk about between, a lack like of democracy and fascism, we can talk about the separatists. And this is something that all the other, like, you know, internet reviewers go into quite a bit. But just, like, there's no reason why we should choose the Republic or the Separatists. 
Other than we're right. told that the Separatists are the bad guys, because but then, I like, guess. I'm sorry, the only thing we know about the Separatists is that they take orders from a hologram and a hood. So, like, yeah. it's very hard to be sympathetic <laughs> to their aims. So it's like, why are you... I mean, like, watch Clone Wars. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, like, Y7 show does a great job of this. But, like, um, like, the, but I, I think he's relying again on that, like, you know, like, oh, this is just like the Civil War, so obviously the Separatists are the Confederates who I know are the bad guys. So obviously I can just say the, the Separatists are the bad guys, and there's no reason for the writer to actually explicate why they would be the bad guys, except there is a reason because we have no reason, like. <laughs> right. They're just bad because yeah. they're called Separatists, yeah. and we know that they're connected to the and we know we like the Republic because the Empire didn't like the Republic. Yes. Uh, all right, so Game of Thrones. It's known for its political complexity, right? Here's the, here's I the mean, pro- it was. I mean, I the mean, first couple of seasons mm-hmm. were great. It's because they followed the books. Like Game of like like a Game of Thrones. The novel is all about like Ned trying to be that guy who's navigating all these like contradictory, interlocking relationships and failing at it, right? Like, the, right. that's what yeah, that show is. That's what that that book is, and that's what that season was. Yeah, I mean, the show mm-hmm. didn't do a great job with Ned, because they kind of cut out his driving motivation. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> but, yeah. no, I mean, and they had these yeah. interlocking relationships, and into season two, you know, we've got Blackwater, we're seeing people on both sides of it, and, like, you, you, you are understanding the very dangerous way people are proceeding. Even even uh, Rob's campaign, I hate how much they foregrounded and Rob and backgrounded uh, Catelyn, but I thought they did a good job of showing the stakes, showing the difficulty of all the choices uh, they were making. Yeah, but like like Rob's like whole central choice, the choice about whether or not to execute Karstark was like, you know, like there's a reason why I have to do this. Like both because of like, you know, I have to maintain like this political system and it's like, you know, foundations and like fealty and everything like that. But also if I do this, there will be this consequence and these people will be offended. But these people will also be offended if I don't do it. And so like, because there's so many interested parties it's impossible, like, and each action that you take has different effect on all the parties, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, that's a divi- that's the definition of political complexity. So they managed to have that at least until, like, the third season. And then what happened? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I am going to all play devil's advocate here and mm-hmm. say, um, in the most recent couple of seasons, would you – it seems that, that Carol is getting a lot of <laughs> – Sorry, sorry, Cersei, Cersei. Um, Cheryl. Um, so Cersei's motivations and even potentially some the conflict within her motivations seems to be fairly well. I mean, well, it's, problem- it's ex- okay. Um, it's explicated in the story that she has conflicting, potentially conflicting motivations in her decision making, especially in her relationship with Jamie. Um, how is that? not politically complex from your guys' perspective. Off of the top of my head, the problem with the Cersei character on Game of Thrones is that you can see that she has complex motivations. Like, the tech, like, you can see on screen that it's all about, like, you know, maintaining, like, the safety of her children, maintaining her own position, uh, you know, like, uh, maintaining order in King's Landing. And then, but, like, we're told over and over again that her only motivation is power. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it. It seriously feels like the show is just about like immaculately gaslighting her character at this point, where she is making these decisions, these governance decisions that are good and justified. And you know, you might not fully agree with everything she does, and she clearly has troubling tendencies. But she is absolutely like 
a logical actor. And then mm. everyone responds to this like, oh my god, Cersei can't be trusted with anything, or oh, you've really got to rein her. All she cares about, like, like the the writers have said this, the characters have said this, like the actor has said this at this point. All she cares about is power, but that's clearly not how she's behaving. Yeah, at some point, two seasons, it's not complexity because for some reason everyone is just dead set against her, and it's kind of like mm-hmm. I actually find her a very complex character because she's really doing what she can in the system that just. Absolutely. I mean, the fifth season is the perfect example of this, right? Like, (laughs) we're supposed to apparently, I think this is what we're supposed to be on Marjorie's side because Marjorie is apparently being persecuted by Cersei. But as far as I can tell, it's the other way around. I actually think my favorite example, Joya, is in season Mm -hmm. six when Marjorie and Loras are being held prisoners by the faith. Like, this is a serious, Uh serious problem. Uh, Politically, this has ramifications. This is, you know, we're talking about, like, House Tyrell has their kids, like, their heirs being held prisoner. It's the, it's the queen of the fucking seven kingdoms. Um, and so Cersei and, like, teams up with Olena to try to, like, take everything, but lo and behold, Marjorie already struck some kind of horrible deal that basically gave Zealots <laughs> full control of the government. Um, the judicial system, at least. Yeah. So Cersei comes back the next episode to Olena and she's like, look, this is a major problem and this isn't going to end well for your house. Like, we have to team up again. And Olena's like, no, you're the most vile woman I've ever met. It's like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> but like- so do you think, so do you think that in the most recent seasons, um, the show has opted for telling uh telling you that things are politically complicated without actually following through on well, showing the political the complexity thing is, or is, the thing or is, is it something that different it's, it's not complicated because it's complex it's complicated because it literally makes no sense and you can't it figure out what's going on like mm-hmm. like the why they needed a truce with cersei is a very complicated question to parse out because there's no logical there's no answer. answer to it <laughs> But yeah. it's not complicated in that the, these politics have an effect on the characters. And then on the other hand, too, Gretchen, you've got like the character of Daenerys, and she just keeps repeating that she's going to break the wheel. and Which means destroy the feudal system, but we, we don't know what it means. And she keeps then yeah. also talking about her like birthright to the throne. So, uh, okay. Uh, so they have these like ideas of wheel breaking and systemic stuff things but no, it's like it's it's like a cargo cult of political complexity they know what political complexity is supposed to look like and they think that if they kind of just like have the appearance of it then that's actual like political complexity and and star wars kind of did the same thing like mm. they know they know what that looks like on the surface like they know what like a senate scene in a political collect complex plot would look like so they have the scene but they don't necessarily have like, the plot like you could say it's complex that the iron bank wants to back Cersei because she's less of a risk than Daenerys. But then at the same time, you've got this Iron Bank representative complimenting Cersei for having blown up the religious institution of all the small folk and saying that she cast off the yoke of superstition from King's Landing. (laughs) So like, there's just, there's no, this comes back to logical coherence. The incoherence Mm -hmm. of the show that underlies everything distracts from the political complexity. So what it ends up being is just sort of Mm. like political speech over top of nonsense, which is actually kind of Star Wars too, now that I think about it. Like, like Padme can say her like, I like democracy speeches, but (laughs) that doesn't mean anything. Right. And it doesn't really affect anything either. So yeah, they're very, very they're very, very no. similar. Um, 
God, the Carol's Landing, Cheryl's Landing retrospectives, I think, highlight this the best. So I'll link those. Uh, any final words on, on the politics of these two wonderful pieces of media before we move on? No. <laughs> I mean, to me, the one thing I will say is, I mean, I know you guys don't want to give the show a lot of credit, and I don't think that they they necessarily do a great job in crafting these characters who are interacting in these ways, but it is interesting to contrast um, Star Wars and Game of Thrones in the sense that uh, Game of Thrones has very specifically seemed to create this, like, <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but, like, the lack of complexity is around female characters, which doesn't necessarily make it better, yeah. but it is interesting to compare that to, like, Padme kind of backing a guy who turns out to be a tyrant. Mm-hmm. Like, you have just, like, a difference between, like, because to me, I think what what makes huh, what makes Palpatine so frightening, I think, as a villain is that he's, like, the epitome of privilege. Oh, yeah. Like, he's he's an old white male who took over and is now a political tyrant and is, you know, destroying the galaxy. Um, you know, by by pretending, like, by wanting to, like, have, like, this, like, order and control is actually, like, ruining a lot of people's lives. Is um, it ruining and people's I lives, think, <laughs> Who are these lives that he's ruining? Where are they? Um... I mean, we hear some of it in the original trilogy. Yeah. Um, and again, more in the expanded universe. Um, but still, like, that, that is it. It's not like a lot, but at least it is something that, like, Game of Thrones is creating, I guess, a faux political complexity surrounding, like, female political actors. I mean, again, it's not like big. It's not like, it's not like amazingly or well done, but it's at least, like, different that they're willing to, like, allow all of the, like, major, almost all of the major players at least that we've discussed, are women. Well, the only thing is, there's like, uh, and I'll link my uh, sexism piece, the huge element of that is that basically the litmus test for whether they're good people or not is if they listen to their male advisors. That's more or less the theme right now of the show. No, and like, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just trying to say that like, that is something that is different about these two. Like, no matter how well done it is on either side, like, there is a distinction between how fronted the female – they may be figureheads, but, like, their female figureheads yeah. are versus, like, the like the prequel trilogy where it's, you know, other than Padme, like, it's basically all a bunch of men. Yeah, that's true. Even the Separatists – like, the Separatists, um, the Empire, and the Trade Federation are all run by men. They're all male characters. Yeah. Um, so at least, like, again, I'm not trying to say that it's super well done. I'm just saying it's something to point out, that, like, there is a distinction there. You don't have like, to hedge that made. much. You're allowed to say nice things about Game of Thrones. We won't beat you up. <laughs> yeah. The writing is still, like, the writing is strikingly sexist. So, like, I I agree that mm-hmm. it's interesting. It's a more interesting dynamic to dig into. It's just, like, it, it's not... As though um, Game of Thrones like corrects this problem that Star Wars had. I think they just have unique problems to themselves. Uh, and Game of Thrones. No, and I didn't. I yeah. didn't say that they were. I think a lot. Yeah, a lot of Game of Thrones's problems, I think, to do with gender is that they think they're doing something that's feminist, and they're failing at it. Yeah, exactly. With George Lucas, yeah. I, he didn't even really try. I mean, yeah. he's got major Smurfette issues with Star Wars, which yes. is getting slightly better in the uh, new trilogy, of course. And everybody's bitching about it. <laughs> yeah, well, those 
Feminazis ruining everything. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to transition into our final segment on good writing fallacies. A tragedy has occurred. We've started right here with the taxation trade routes. All right. So for our second segment, uh, we are going to be talking about, as Kylie said, good writing fallacies. So and good writing, you can't see our outline, but good writing is in quotes. Good um, writing. Good writing <laughs> fallacies. Uh, fallacy is about what good writing means. And um, a lot of this comes from, at least for me, I've had several recent conversations uh, online, specifically on Twitter, talking about exactly this topic, um, having people, you know, try and argue with me in certain ways by saying, well, but good writing does blah, blah, blah. Um, and we're going to hear to talk about what those blah, blah, blahs are. And we might miss some. These are just the ones that like I've had recently come up in conversations with people. Yeah. Um, and felt like talking about because I think that they are assumptions maybe that people have who, who maybe aren't writers or maybe who are, but like do seem to, this does seem to be a common thread. I've had these, you know, topics come up in conversation multiple times. So they seem to be kind of widespread ideas. Uh, for example, that, uh, good writers craft characters that fit the story best. Um, I have heard this uh, come up frequently. Shouldn't it be the uh, other way around? <laughs> That's my um, opinion. And Maybe most often, I, writing. like, right, like, um, but like most often I've seen this used to justify a lack of diversity. Oh, like typically yeah. that's that, like that's where people bring this up. Is they're like, well, like what best fits, it best fits the story that this protagonist is a white male because good writers pick protagonists that fit their story best. Well, why would, why would, I mean, you know, a different type of character not fit that story though? Well, cause stories like come from different places. Like maybe sometimes like you have a setting that you want to explore. Maybe sometimes you have a character that you want to explicate. But like usually I think the character comes first, unless it's like SF and you have a setting. But, um, so I, I, I think you have a white male protagonist that you want to write about and then you make a story for him. I think that's more usually the case. I don't know. I don't want to generalize. Well, but I'm sympathetic to authors having a story they want to tell, mm-hmm. like a specific story they want to tell. I just think in most of these cases, like, oh, and therefore that needed to it's be not, a white male is fallacious. It's not really because- a counter example or anything like that, but uh, this makes me think of The Kite Runner, which is a very good book. And it takes place in Afghanistan in a certain time period, and it's about, like, a male straight protagonist. Mm-hmm. And one of the criticisms that that book got was that it didn't talk about, like, you know, women in Afghanistan in that time period enough. And just, like, in that case, I think that, like, you know, but that wasn't the story, was an actual, not an excuse, but an actual, like, reason why that criticism is not the best criticism you can make of that book, <laughs> you know? Um, because, like, you know, there are stories about straight males that are valid and important. Right. Right. And especially if you have like a book with such a narrow focus, then mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, um, All Quiet on the Western Front famously doesn't have a single female character in it, right? Like, but like, you know, it, it's, it's very narrowly focused in a particular time and place that was basically all male. And that doesn't make the story not important. But like, again, it's kind of the pattern, right? Right. Right. And to me, the other thing that this kind of, 
um, statement seems to ignore is mm-hmm. that the idea of best fits can yeah. be shaped by subconscious, like cultural bias. Yeah. Like most of the people who are roughly our age. So this generation of writers, um, perhaps one of the reasons that they, that in their mind, like a straight white male protagonist might best, best fit the story is because they were raised on stories with white male protagonists. Or they so are it seems like na- white, straight white males. Um, so it seems natural yeah. to like tell the stories in the way that you heard them. And if what you hear is a, is of a very particular, like narrow, like, you know, like straight, a straight white male, if that is what you were raised to think of as a hero, then yeah, your brain is going to be like, well, I'm writing a story with, you know, a fantasy protagonist. So he's got to be a straight white male because like, that's what you know. And you may not even be aware that your brain is doing it. So like, even the idea of like best fitting a story is like, well, but that can be a product of what you're raised by and frequently is a product of the stories that you're raised on. And also like, if that's like where your brain is going, maybe your story is a little stale. (laughs) Like, maybe it's been done. <laughs> right. Right. That is also true. And I just also think if you, like, try and think through your story with a different type of character as the protagonist, mm-hmm. like, it probably should be able to stand in in that way, too. Like, in terms of best fit, you'll probably find a different character can fit in there just fine. It just might take you somewhere a little less expected. Like, yeah, well, yeah, well, right. plot, plot is usually, le- like, you know, the least interesting part, right? Like, it's just what the character, ha- like, what happens to the character and is the character that really drives, like, the narrative. Well, for, yeah, for some people, I definitely know people who do read stories more, like, read or watch shows more for plot. Yeah, but, than like, you can for, have, like, you can have the same plot with two different characters and have a completely different story. And it's, it's the character that's really the deciding factor. Right. Like, yeah, I think that's true. I, yeah, I just also know people who do read more for plot. Um, and I happen to so think I figure those it's worth people mentioning, are yeah. not as engaged when the characters aren't as strong. Right. But yeah, I think right. I think I think you need a good plot. I do think plot's important. It's just that, like, yeah, in my opinion, character drives plot more than plot drives character. So I'm very not sympathetic to that argument. Right. I can't imagine sitting down to write a story and coming up with like a plot and then being like, what character fits this plot best? (laughs) I don't write that way. Maybe there are people who do. Um, What the fuck is this next one, Gretchen? Okay. Yeah. So this next one is another, it's a very similar argument. Um, Well-written characters transcend race. Um, And to me, this isn't so much a fallacy in itself. It's a good sentiment. As much as it's a fallacy and how it's used by people, yes. again, to excuse, um, like, lack of diversity. Well, just the thing is that people don't really make this argument when the character they're talking about is, like, a black woman. They're no. like, well, well, she like, transcends see- race. People don't say that. <laughs> no, they don't. Yeah. It's only, it's only like default human, you know, who's, who's white, male, able-bodied, Christian, but not too Christian, you know, those things. Right. Like that, that's why this is so Mm -hmm. stupid because you can just so easily flip it. Like if you're saying well-written characters transcend race, then why not have a character that isn't white? Yeah. Why can't, why can't you have two Star Wars movies in a row with a female protagonist? Like, why is that so upsetting to you? Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, and that, yeah. And that was why I brought this up is because. Like, the way it's being used is a fallacy because no one ever uses it to argue in favor of more diversity. You know what? Like, no one ever says of, like, 
you know, black stormtrooper Finn, hey, you know, a well-written character transcends race, so it shouldn't matter that he's a black stormtrooper. Well, you know what this actually reminds me of is the way TERFs talk about um, trans individuals, where they say that gender is a social construct, so therefore you, like, can't, you you shouldn't change the gender you were assigned for some reason. But it's like, Mm. if you just spin that, if, if it's a social construct, then why the fuck shouldn't you? Right. right. Any you reason you want. It exist in- yeah. <laughs> it's just completely, it doesn't make any sense. If The reverse has to be true if you're arguing this, but then, like, it's never used that way. No. No, it's very clearly just, at least in my opinion, like, this kind of an argument is very clearly an excuse to avoid writing anything. Yeah. But, like, the thing is, like, when you're in, like, any kind of non-privileged group... Like, you don't transcend race. You don't transcend gender. Right. That's It's always going to be something that you have to be aware of because that's what not having privilege means. Right. The only way you are not something is if you are a white, straight, cis, Mm -hmm. het man. Like, that... And then even there, you're something. Like, everybody has something. (laughs) Well, yeah. No, but, like, the way society talks about it is if... I'm going to use linguistic terms here. (laughs) um, Is that, like, cis, het male, able-bodied, white characters are what we would call in linguistics unmarked. Um, so they're like normal. Like this is what normal is. Yes, and anything that doesn't stops. fall into – yeah, anything apart from one of those categories is what is called marked. Therefore, it stands out to you and it's you know significant linguistically some way that like, oh, this is different from normal. And the way our society talks about uh, cishet, male, able-bodied, white characters is that they are the unmarked status. Like, they are what is normal, average, expected. Anything outside of that is marked. Yeah, you, you have to have attention to You it. have to have a reason that why that character is right. female. You have to have a reason why that character is in a wheelchair. You have to have a reason why that character is What's gay. What's interesting is that, like, yep. if you are not that in whatever way, you are expected mm-hmm. to ignore your difference from the unmarked character yes. to empathize with the unmarked character, right? Like, all, right. all of us growing up, we read and consumed media where we empathize with the straight white cis male character right like that's what we do but then if you are that unmarked person you know if you are that marked straight white uh you know cis man watching media then you never really had to learn how to do that i guess no so all that's happening is that they're just being like they're learning how to experience empathy through characters for different backgrounds. Right. Like that's all that this is. Is it really that fucking difficult? Right. Like there's there's an assumption that there's something universal about being a cishet, able-bodied white male. That like every every human being should be able to identify with this because there's something like universal and essential about being this kind of person. Right. That like it, that like if I'm you know a a black trans woman in a wheelchair i should still be able to identify with this cishet straight white male right, and the reason you're able to even though we have absolutely nothing like yeah, but, in common and, and, and i'm sure you have lots bullshit because the only reason you're able to do that is just because it's been the dominative voice in fiction for exactly. years and years right. and in you know, like other you know institutions in our society like that's the only reason why because this is where the power right. is like oh my god this is so stupid all right next one next one next one uh, similar again. A lot of these fall under, you know. There's a pattern here. Um, <laughs> good writing, good writing doesn't force sexual orientation where it doesn't fit. Good writers let it flow naturally into the story. Okay. 
<laughs> I mean, that's kind of subjective. I mean, is that how it's done with straight characters, though? <laughs> like- yeah. See, again, yeah, yeah. Turn it on its head. And, and gee, gee, why is it that no one's like, well, that character being straight has to be like, it has to flow naturally into the story. It has to actually fit the context that that person is straight. But like, what does that even mean that it fits the context? I, I know you've talked about this before, Joy, where you say like, why do Disney movies have to end with a straight wedding? Like, mm-hmm. why is that the default? And that's fine. But then like, if a gay person exists, then it's, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's not appropriate for children. I'm not going to appropriate that uh, insight, though. It's for Nostalgia Chick. Um, but, yeah, but, like, the whole idea – I mean, like, there's something to, like, you know, where we are in our social development right now. And the fact that, like, you know, queer people will probably always be a minority, right? Th- that just, like, it is something that's not, like – I don't know. It's not a product of society. It's just, like – we have always existed throughout history and we will always exist in the future. This is just a, a thing. Yeah, that is I, I true know. Of people. I know, but of some like, people. when I think, like, like in real life, I suppose you could say the kind of like ideal, like utopia situation is that, you know, you find out your friend is gay by like one day they're like, oh, me and my boyfriend would like to come to your Christmas party, right? Like, that's how you find out somebody's gay. And it's not like a big deal. It's just something that, like, like, oh, I have a right. new piece of information yeah, you about know, like, my friend. I'm, How I'm, nice. I'm actually slightly, slightly sympathetic to this argument mm. in the yeah because we're at a place where we're getting really bad queer rep. Like that's why I'm slightly sympathetic to it because sometimes it really just does feel like it's cynical on the part of the writers to tap into a market. Um, I think just because, like, we're at that point in our social development where coming out is still a big deal. Right. right? Like, I want it treated like not a big deal, but that doesn't mm. mean not existing. Because exactly. yeah. uh, the whole point of this this argument, too, is that when it exists, it is said that it's forcing it, right? Like, that's... Right, not- yeah. Exactly. No, yeah. Like, this argument isn't saying, like, isn't about bad queer rep to gain an audience. No, it has it's not even that cynical. Quality, no. I mean, it has it shades is, of, has- I'm okay with str- of gay people as long as they act straight. You know, like, just... Well, it, to me, yeah, to me, it has yeah. shades of don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Of, like, it's fine if gay characters exist as long as, like, I don't have to see right, it. Like, or, like, if, about it. if your character is gay, like, his entire character better be about the fact that he's gay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or else it's not justified and it doesn't flow naturally. Yeah. I, right. I just have yeah. my own personal frustrations right now where we are mm-hmm. with how queer rep is. But that's, right. like, its own other issue. Can you think off the top of your head of, like, a gay character in, like, a mainstream TV show where, like, he's gay and everybody knows that he's gay, but, like, his main conflict isn't about, like, his relationship with his boyfriend or coming out. It's about, like, his trouble at work with his boss or something like that. Um, that's harder. To, yeah, yeah. It's harder to pin down because, yeah, most most characters, if they are mm-hmm. non-straight, a significant portion of their arc is going to revolve around the fact that they're not straight. Mm-hmm. in one form or another i mean honestly the closest i have is cora who just had to like stop a fascist and she happened to <laughs> right. also have a crush on her friend like that was you know. yeah <laughs> but right obviously uh tear force is going in a different direction but no you're completely right like even white josh in crazy ex-girlfriend in season one like that was barely a part of his character i mean it was mm-hmm. it's a part of his character but i mean like that was barely part of how he was used in the plot and now yeah i mean like the kind of joke with white josh is that he's like this giant bro <laughs> like you're like oh he's gay like, yeah i wouldn't expect that yeah but like now <laughs> right. now where they're at like yeah he has relationship yeah. drama and that's taking a front seat yeah not- i would say that there yeah. were there were moments yeah. in winona earp uh especially this last season where 
um, like there were moments where like the way hot relationship like did revolve around like tensions within their relationship. Um, but like the first couple, like the, like the first couple of episodes was like, okay, so Waverly's being weird. And also Nicole has job drama because yeah, she's feeling like, underutilized the, at in work. Both of these cases, like these are problems that like a heterosexual couple would have. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. But it's not the entirety of who they are as characters. Like they're allowed to have problems that aren't around their sexuality as well. This is just an issue of people, of romance taking too much of a front seat in like everything. Um, yeah, in, but if you have like a police media. procedural, you can go through like, you know, like 15,000 seasons of police procedural and never know, like learn the sexual orientation of the characters. Yeah, right. That's true. All right. Uh, last one. <laughs> last one. Um, this is one I made up and it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's related to other arguments I've seen. Um, good writing is perfect, flawless, and 100% unproblematic. I bring it up in the context of just like wider discussions of like, um, we're only like, I hear people using arguments similar, like not exactly this argument. This is actually not one I've heard. The other three were ones where like I specifically heard people saying this exact same thing. Um, but this is more of like a general discussion of like a trend that I am seeing in a lot of, uh, discussions of like within fandom about like engaging in media is that it, if it has a flaw, then it's bad writing. But like equating like, you know, some kind of like a flaw in the way a character is portrayed as like, well, that means it's badly written. Yeah. Um, but like good writing and something being flawed are two different things. Like something like you can have really well written, shitty, awful, horrible, like content. <laughs> Like, you can have really well-written, awful content. You can also have really poorly written, good content. Like, but, like, something that's well-written, like, yeah, like, yeah, Rogue One. Like, the content is really good, but it's really poorly executed. Um, Like, it could have been written better. Like, yeah. Um, the I ideas were like really good and there was potentially some really interesting things to explore there. No, but I think, um, I, think you, I think you are right in a general sense that people just tend to disengage with something as soon as there's a flaw. And right. flaws are allowed to exist. I'm thinking of the Steven Universe fandom. I hate to pick on them so much. It's just like Bismuth is an episode that could definitely use a follow-up and yep. there wasn't fantastic pattern with butch representation, at least not until... um. I can't remember the like off color gem. Topaz. Yes, yes. Or like Topaz first and then Topaz first and then um the other one. So, yeah. I'm blanking on. I um, really need to catch up before November tenth. But yeah, no, and, and it's suddenly like this show is garbage. It's like yeah. well mm-hmm. Okay, is it or are you asking for something from a show that maybe wasn't reasonable in the first place a little bit? Like I mean imagine what we would have lost if we Gave up on black sales and decided it was garbage in the first season when they made that diamond. Right. Stuff, you know? Right. <laughs> black sales right. had a problematic first season. Like, right. 100%. Um, but it was good writing. Like, yeah. it was engaging right. and you could see that something was going on there. And then season two is maybe the best television season ever. Right. So, yeah, like, I think there is, there, there's this very black and white mentality in fandom. Yeah. And right. like, even if you're just talking about something good, people would be like, well, what about this? It's like, uh, okay. Yeah, I know. Right. That sucks. <laughs> like, Battlestar Galactica's last 45 minutes really sucked. I know. 
Right. And that like, I can say, you know, we can say, well, black sales is really good writing. And that's not to like saying that doesn't mean that we are ignorant of its flaws or trying to whitewash or ignore like anything that it didn't do, that it didn't execute perfectly well. Mm -hmm. Like saying something is good writing doesn't, doesn't mean it's perfect. Just means like, yeah, it's engaging. We find the characters complex and interesting. Um, you know, there's good world, but like there's, it means a lot of things, but like it doesn't mean that something is perfect or even that the person saying, I consider this good writing is ignorant of mm-hmm. flaws or failings that that piece of media might have. I think there's also something to say for like a willingness to take the good stuff out of media that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of those, uh, <laughs> what are the names of the two books, Gretchen, that I read with the, uh, the, pirates oh the abyss duology yeah yeah the abyss duology which is like you know i wouldn't call it schlock but it's not like winning a pulitzer anytime soon it's no it's 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 good it's fine it's it's young young adult perfectly fine kind of almost feels like fanfic when you're reading it just in it's like optimism and sort of tropes that exist but it's not oh yeah it's super tapping it like i mean to me it's very obviously tapping into like fanfic style oh yeah but not Purposely. that there's anything wrong with that. And I no. mean, the world building was pretty bad in it. Like, for, you said this in your review. Yeah, it was, um, it was really shallow. Paper thin. But you know what? Like, reading it and just seeing the way that the main character interacted with her love interest, uh, is, is what it was. It was like a long shipping couple of books. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I was reading it like, oh, why am I reading this? But then like, I couldn't stop. And it's just there's something so good and so engaging and refreshing about how it was written mm-hmm. that it then like sparked me writing all this <laughs> Carmen Sandiego fanfic. <laughs> um, I, I, no, like I had a huge, huge productivity boom just because I was reading what I would call flawed books, like flawed, not amazingly deep. Like, yeah, but there's something to be said, I think, for just like, okay, yeah, this isn't perfect, but I'm going to get something out of it. You know, I even get something out of Supergirl, which is like, all I do is deconstruct the flaws of that show now. Right. Because it's just like, you know, it's a DC TV show on the CW. (laughs) Your point reminds me of Kylie is like, um, like the classics and Mm -hmm. how many of them do not reflect the values that we currently have. Right. Right. (laughs) But I think learn something from anything any yeah. piece of media even game of thrones which is like pure shit like julia you oh, and game i of thrones have taught us so a- much <laughs> i know but it's yeah because at the same time it's clearly tapped into something that people find entertaining yeah and i just i think no matter what there's a value in looking at media even in its ugliest forms right i, I just I, I can't imagine just wanting to completely shut off with it unless like for you it's an unpleasant experience right right yeah. And I've had shows that I've had to stop because like Westworld was just unpleasant for me. It was like, okay, I, I don't, there's, they're not saying anything and I don't care. So I stopped watching. Right. But like, I think there's no reason like, okay, well, this show does this and it's trash. It's like, well, yeah, it is, but like, here's what I'm getting out of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like the point, the reason, like the main reason I wanted to bring this up was I think that there is a conflation between like good, right? Like good writing and a lack of like problematic discourse versus yes. like discourse equals bad writing that like if there's like a discourse around a particular like you know character not you know falling into like problematic implications or like a plot line that has some really icky like when you look at it you're like ooh yeah that's what they did like that that yep. 
that's not always equal to bad writing. Sometimes it is, but they're not always the same thing. Something that is really well written and overall, like a, a, an example of like good writing doesn't always, you know, perfectly line up with like our values or, you know, doesn't mean it's like free of like potentially problematic implications because like problematic implications, the way we talk about it a lot, and Kylie and I are going to do um, a piece on this coming up soon. A lot of what we talk about as problematic implications is, you know, what we as the audience like see in the text that may or, or in the I say text because that's my background, um, <laughs> or in the you know film or media or or television is, um, yeah, text in the broader sense. Um, what a lot of what we call problematic implications is what we are seeing in there that may or may not be intended, um, even may or may not even be what is actually on screen, but it's what we perceive. Yeah. Um, and because there are so many different human beings, there are just going to be just as many different perceptions about a piece of media. So something could be good writing. And I mean, even if like 99% of people don't see anything, you know, that's problematic about it, like, you know, 1% of people could see prob- something problematic about it. Doesn't mean it's bad writing. It just means that, like, to those people, like, it is perceived of in a negative light. But that doesn't mean it's objectively bad writing. Like, right. And that's all valid. And it's also perfectly acceptable to say, I really don't like that this is in here. Right. Mm-hmm. But I like this thing. Like, that's... Right. It, it's fine. Like, dude. I really don't want to read Too Gentle of Verona ever again. <laughs> but that doesn't right. mean I think Shakespeare's a bad writer. <sighs> right. Yeah. Well, this was a good discussion. I think I really enjoyed this. <laughs> and there's a lot more to be said in this topic because it really is about, like, how dialogue is, is structured and stuff, too. Um, but we've unfortunately got to get out of here because I think we've been talking for an inordinately long <laughs> amount of time. Probably. This week. Um, As we do. So, yeah. Please stop by thefundamentals.com uh, and you can check out our writing. And other than that, yeah, here's here's to a, a good season two, right, guys? Woohoo! Yeah! Kicking it off in style, and we will be back in a couple weeks. So we will talk to you next time, and thank you for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye! Goodbye. I don't know why. I have let's generalize about men stuck in life. Oh my god, that's it's probably because I was singing it all Friday night when we were like working. Let's generalize about men. <laughs> let's generalize about them. Let's take one thing about one man and, and apply it to, to all, all of, of them. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh my god, that song is, I think the best part is just, what about gay men? And they're like, no, they're great. Gay men are all really great. (laughs) (laughs) They're never mean, just sassy. (laughs) Okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm gonna do it. All three billion men are like this. (laughs) Joya.